All right, so I obviously have not been here for lessons one through four, but I'm curious just to hear from you all. What, uh, what has been maybe some, some big ahas or, or big nuggets of truth that, um, that maybe you picked up on as you went through weeks one through four? Nothing? Amy. So checking the hard attitude. Good. Yes, Orion. All right, he did give me some material, and it, it does have a quick review. Um, so let's do that before we, we jump into the video. It says, let's consider what we have covered so far. So in lesson one, we discussed the promise and hope of being changed by God's grace. Right? This was all about God's grace. Sets the foundation, the context, so that more and more we reflect the character of Christ amidst life struggles and relationships. So again, lesson one was really a focus on the context. It all starts with God. Lesson two, you guys saw that change is the byproduct of being known and loved by Jesus, our Redeemer. So we talk about God and then Christ, right? That relationship with Christ. It takes place as we are in a relationship with Christ. Lesson three, you guys saw that living in redemptive relationships with others that Christian community helps us to see our constant need of communion with Jesus. Fellowship with Christ is foundational, but fellowship with others is also intended by God to be a crucial part of our spiritual growth. So lesson two talked about that relationship with Christ. Lesson three, relationship with the saints. All right, and you're going to see that in the video today, that emphasis. And lesson four introduced a model of the way God brings about change in our hearts. And I don't know, Orion, if that was the model or if that was a, a Gabe invention, but um, <clears throat> I think the model is this, right? The, the components. So God knows, the first one is God knows my world in detail, the heat, the sufferings. And we're going to be talking about that today. God understands my heart and how I operate. So someone brought it up in the midst of that suffering. What is our heart attitude? The thorns. What is our reaction when we, when we have the heat? And then God meets me and changes me in the midst of life challenges, the cross, right? That relationship with Christ. And the ultimate response, God produces a harvest of good things in my life and the lives of those around me, the fruit, all right? So five and six, chapters five and six, you'll be focusing on the heat. You'll continue to go through those four components that I just talked about. The central point, though, God understands the full range of joys and sorrows that make up our lives. It's really going to be a focus of, of today's video and our discussion. And what are the implications of that? The application. Personally, personal comfort and direction result from knowing that God understands my world and provides help that fits my need. We often talk about God being a transcendent God, right? Being far above the creation that, that He created. However, He's also an imminent God, meaning... A very personal God. He didn't just leave us to, to figure out life on our own. He's right there beside us. <clears throat> and then relationally, I want to help people understand that because God understands their struggles, He can offer help that is genuinely helpful. What is the message that we want to give to others in their time of suffering and struggle? It's hope, right? It's hope. And we find that in the Word of God. Okay? Um, so let's have a little bit of discussion. I want to hear from you. What are some possible ways to respond to suffering? And what assumptions do people make about suffering? Just think about situations in your own life. What, what are some, 
some ways and be real here. What are some ways that we respond to suffering? Yes. Doubting God, right? Have you been there? I think we've all been there. Doubting God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Okay, what else? Angry. Thanks, Raymond. Absolutely. We can get angry. Impatient with God. Excellent. Yeah. What did I do wrong? Right? Condemn ourselves. What did I do wrong? Excellent. A couple notes here to be thinking about to that question, um, sometimes we tend to minimize how painful life can be, right? I don't know about you men, but sometimes it's like, I, I can do this, right? It's no big thing. Just just suck it up, quit the tears, do what you got to do, right? We minimize, we push it away. We expect life to be free of trouble, trouble, especially when we think we lead a good life compared to others. We can get very comfortable, can't we? We can get very comfortable and life is good and we, we don't expect suffering. Should we expect suffering? Absolutely. We're going to talk about that some more. We think of good things and bad things as completely separate experiences when in reality difficulty is often hidden in blessing and blessing is found in difficulty. Did you pick that up? So difficulty is hidden in blessing. How can that be? Right When things are going well, you get a promotion, you get a raise. Right Sometimes, again, you can become comfortable and, and you forget about the God that provided that. You can come, become prideful. Right. So, so even in our time of success, there can be suffering or pain. We expect the good things we have to stay that way. Right. Again, sometimes you get into this area of being very comfortable um, I'll be honest with you, seven kids, as you guys uh, probably remember, and they're older though. So many of them have moved out of the house and we got down to just two kids at home. So just the four of us at home. We love our children. We love to have them home. But if I'm being honest with you, the four of us at home, that was getting pretty nice. <laughs> that was getting pretty nice. We just, we got into our rhythm and, and life was good. And then I had a daughter graduate and she's back home with us now. I had a daughter that moved out and went to Nashville and applauded. Wonderful. She's back home with us now. Love having them home. I do, but it, it changes the dynamics. That comfortable spot I was in has been disrupted. Right? It's not a bad thing. It's a sanctifying thing. It's a good thing. We live as if we are invincible, thinking that we will have the biblical wisdom and strength to avoid or endure suffering. We're surprised when we don't. We shouldn't be surprised. And lastly, or, or second to last, we are easily lulled to sleep by the advancements of modern technology, which may cause us to think that it can protect or rescue us. All right, the technology today, especially I'll call it in a first world, is just phenomenal. And when that gets disrupted, your car, your dishwasher, your water heater tank, right, we get upset. And we're like, how, how can this be happening? All those things we should expect to take place. Those are all sanctifying moments. And then lastly, we place undue confidence in our plans and our ability to control our lives and mistakenly think that we won't suffer. I'll go back to my children. I think I grew up in an era, certainly my parents, but I think even me where there was this expectation that you know, maybe you go to college and then you get married and you start your family and... Um, again, for our seven children, maybe a similar expectation that, that we would help provide them to that next step, that transition, and, 
and they would get married and life would be sweet and, and that's not happening. Right? And, and that's okay. That's God's wonderful plan. And now as I have children come back, I'm, I'm always a dad. So my heart breaks for this transition period for them because I want them to have comfort. I want them to have you know, success, if you will. And that's, that's not what I want for them. I want them to be sanctified. And so I have had to learn to just be patient, to be a praying dad, to be a dad that encourages them, that sits there when they cry, right? It's okay. But I've had to change how I address my children because of this change in paradigm, if you will. And it's all good. It's all good. It's precious. Okay. Any comments on that? If not, we'll go ahead and start the video. All good? All right. All right. What, um, what kind of nuggets jumped out to you as you heard, heard that, uh, heard that video? Great insight, Brian. And it it gets back, did you hear him talk about the theology of suffering? Right? We have to understand the Bible says so much about suffering. And we'll cover some of that some more. So great insight. Thank you. What else? Yes, Karen. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. King David was real, wasn't he? Right? When you see that in the Psalms, it is so wonderful that in, in God's inspired word, Right, he gave us that gift to say what it really is like to live this life. Great, thank you. Yes. I have a couple boys who um, like rap music, and it's music that I don't like and I don't get, and the language is bad and all of that. <clears throat> but I was talking to a counselor one time, and she made the point that they listen to that because they can relate to that. And I keep thinking, well, don't listen to that; it's going to sink you into a deeper depression, you know, that kind of thing. But it's just like Psalm 88, what he was saying about how we can relate to this, and then we can relate to Jesus, who, and you know, who suffered for us. And I just think about we don't need to find comfort and hope in the world, and, and if that's where we're seeking it, it's only going to go this deep. Mm. But when we can find in Scripture where Jesus relates to us, and we have that hope in Him, it just takes us to that deeper level. level and it's just so rich. And I Amen. Yeah, I go back. Thank you, Amy. I go back to right the theology of suffering. How are you going to understand it? It's in the Word, which is why we, it's so important that we are grounded in the Word to understand the context of of suffering according to God's plan. So excellent. Thank you. What else? Yes. <laughs> excellent. I um, if on that point, me if we can uh, turn to Romans eight, uh, starting in verse twelve. I'll give you a second there. You know, again, it goes back to this theology of suffering. What does it say in the Word? And I, some of you have already um, heard this question, so I won't try and trick you, but I'll often ask classes, you know, hey, raise your hand if you're a biblical counselor. And, and a lot of people think, well, I'm not certified. And, and the right answer is we're all biblical counselors, right? We all are supposed to be sharing the counsel that we find in God's Word. And, and Mia, to your point, here's an example of, you know, giving a person hope and understanding of what does the Scripture say about suffering. So one of those passages is in uh, Romans 8, starting in, in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, here's the passage, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let me go one more verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So back to verse 17. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our path to glorification must include suffering. That's what this is saying. Right? Our sanctification process, we will suffer. It should not be a surprise. And and, and again, if you're... If you're trying to give someone hope, you can turn to a passage like this and say, see what God's Word says. You need to suffer. That's that's how you're going to be sanctified. That is your path to glorification. All right? And then I love uh, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be that is to be revealed to us. So think about in the video, he talked about the two extremes. Right? Sometimes we can maximize the suffering. We identify, I mean, that is our persona. There's a caution against doing that. And, and this is kind of what that verse is getting at. Don't, don't get stuck, if you will, identifying yourself with that suffering. All right? Focus on the eternal perspective. And the other caution, you don't want to minimize it. Right? You just don't want to blow it off and push it away. There's a nice balance in between there, and I think that's what this verse is getting at. Put your sights on Jesus Christ, that eternal perspective. And yet, we see right in God's Word, there is a way to handle that suffering, right? We're going to see it in James. That's what we talked about in the video. So, again, I love this kind of theology of suffering, I think is important to say that there's lots that God says about suffering in, in the Word. What else? Anything from the video? I like how he started, right? He gave a review of of what you went over in chapters 1 through 4, but he says change happens in the context of relationships. A relationship with God and a relationship with your brothers and sisters. That's the context, right? And that always has to be kept in mind. You're not doing this of your own power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's that relationship. If you're not growing in your relationship, that time of suffering is going to be extremely difficult. All right, so it all starts with the relationship with Christ, but then we are also have that change as we interact with the saints. As you go to um, chapters, again, starting in 5, but 5 through 12, the warning was don't see it as simply a technique for change or a technique on how to handle suffering, right? Always bring it back into the context of those relationships. So I thought that was uh, very interesting. Um, he talked about the, the, I love the two extremes, right? To maximize and minimize. Anyone want to share an example of, of maybe where you've gone to one of those extremes? Uh, either to maximize, to identify with it, you know, something that was just crushing, or to minimize it. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? A visual reminder, right? Of, of that suffering and yet what God has done for you. That's That's wonderful. Good. All right, let's go to Psalm 88. I know he read it, but I, I want to review that a little bit more. Let me uh, read just a little bit of the intro to Psalm 88 from the material that Gabe gave me. We've seen that the Bible says that we are always living under the scorching heat of trouble or the cool rain of blessing. In either case, we are always responding to what is happening to us. The Bible doesn't offer a sanitized version of life or our reactions to it. 
Dark, shocking, and painful stories abound. Scripture shows us people who think, act, plan, decide, and speak just like we do. If the Bible left out these real-life stories of murder, rape, famine, disease, judgment, depression, war, adultery, theft, corruption, and overwhelming fear, how likely would we be to believe that God's Word could help us? Um, During the Old Testament survey I did over the summer, um, we related a lot of the characters that we, we talked about in the Old Testament to Hebrews 11, right? The, the hall of faith, if you will. These people, their names listed in Hebrews 11 as, as this incredible faith. And yet when you look at some of their life circumstances, I mean, these were real sinful people. And, and some of them, there was some nasty stuff happening. So yes, the Bible gives us real life, real life examples, which should be a great encouragement to us. It is incredibly encouraging to realize that the Bible addresses the world as we know it. Again, an imminent or an intimate God. God makes it very clear that He understands the heat we face every day. It isn't always pleasant to read the honest stories of Scripture, but it is comforting. We realize that we will never face an experience, no matter how dark or difficult, that would be a shock to our God. Hopefully that gives you great, great encouragement. There's nothing that happens that he cannot understand, relate to, and be there for you, interceding for you at the right hand of God. The hope and help that God offers his children reflect his knowledge of the full range of human experience. That's why some of the most comforting passages of Scripture may not even have the word comfort in them. Psalm 88, do you see comfort in there? You don't. They may not be neatly tied together with a happy ending or say much about God's promises, love, and grace. Yet they give hope in their accurate depiction of the things we face. Psalm 88, of course, is one of those passages. So let's go to Psalm 188 and just review that a little bit. What I'd love to hear from you as, as I read these passages, what, what comes to mind? What, what are you feeling? So let me read a couple of these. O Lord God of my salvation... I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Let one set loose among the dead. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. What, what jumps out at you when you hear those verses? Say again. Powerlessness. Powerlessness, right? Despair. Utter despair. I don't know if you've ever been there. Um, if any of you have ever experienced deep depression, I have not. Um, but I know it can just be crippling, right? Deep, deep despair you're hearing from the psalmist right now. Picking up in verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. What does that conjure up? What is that? What is that saying about God, or the thought about God here? Do you feel like this close relationship, or or does it give you a sense of being forsaken by God? Ryan, sorry. Yeah, barely catch your breath. But you get a sense here that God has left you. 
Again, you remember in the video, I love, I love the comparison he made to Jesus Christ on the cross. That's exactly what happened at that time. God the Father, the Holy Spirit left him during that time for our sake. There are times when you can feel forsaken. Why you? Yeah, easy to start pointing to yourself. What did I do? And I, I love going back to Romans 8. I think it's Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let that be your verse, right? Often, the, it's not Satan that's condemning us, it's ourselves, right? That's the danger. But in these times of despair, I, I hope what you're getting a sense of is it's okay to cry out to God with this kind of language. He already knows your heart. It's okay to cry out in our struggles. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. I think it's important to cry out because... Yes. Amen. That's an excellent point. It's almost going back to that other extreme of, of, to some degree, minimizing, right? Because you aren't crying out. You, he already knows your heart. But I love that, how you frame that. It's the bridge, right, to fully um, receive the help you need. Excellent. All right, verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. What does this talk about? Relationships, right? Where are my buddies? Where am I? I'm not getting any encouragement. I'm isolated. I'm by myself. And often in our times of suffering, we can feel like that, but it's not true. Also, I hope if, if you're on the other side, right, and, and you're helping a friend, you're trying to encourage them, these are some of the things they're thinking about. Even though you're there, you might have shot them a text, you might have given them a phone call, they're, they're probably feeling isolated, like they're alone. Keep that in mind, right? Work even harder to be that friend that comes along beside them. Picking up in verse 9. <clears throat> my eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in abandoned? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Again, an idea you feel like you are dying, crying out for help, but no one comes. Nobody's there. Let me read this to the end and see what insight you have. But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Again, a lot of the same themes we just talked about. You feel though as though God has turned his back on you. Your friends have turned your back on you. Again, that relational aspect. You feel like you wake up every morning to a very dark world and i loved in the video how he talked about that's how the psalm ends did it bother you that the psalm did not end on a positive note any thoughts on that i think it's great it didn't right it makes it real that's what people go through that's how it ends 
So what are some nuggets, um, truths that we can gain from what we just read in Psalm 88? And you guys touched on some of these. God understands the full range of human experience from supreme joy to crushing sorrow. And it is crushing. The promises of the Redeemer come to people who live in a world where such things take place. That's the, the hope we can give to people and to ourselves. God's honesty about these experiences invites me to be honest about the things I face, what you just talked about. Biblical Christianity is never blind or stoic in its reaction to life. Going to God with my despair, doubt, and fear is an act of faith. Isn't that wonderful? It's an act of faith to do that. Psalm 88 reminds me to run to God in desperate moments, not away from Him. The Bible is not about an idyllic world full of noble people who always make the right choice. The Bible describes a world where we recognize where very good and very bad things happen and where people make wonderful and horrible choices. The Bible describes a world that sometimes makes us laugh, but often makes us cry. We had um, an incident this weekend where we got news, um, some very good friends of ours, the, the husband, suddenly died. Fifty And, and we met these people while we were in Germany in the, in the military many, many years ago and have been um, just really good friends for a long, long time. So good that the couple was actually in our will. They were to take over the care of our children if something was to happen to Karina and I. So very, very close. And um, we got... We got the phone call or text, I don't remember how it came in, that he just suddenly, 57 years old, suddenly passed away, a heart attack. And I, I had been studying some of this material, so it was, um, it was interesting to watch even how my family responded differently to that news. Obviously, there was shock, and, and you just sit and you're like, I, how can that happen? You cry out for the wife, who is just in utter despair. I mean, they were so close, strong, strong Christians. I mean, he was her best friend, and, and here she is now. They have a son that they actually adopted from Ukraine many while we were in Germany, <clears throat> a young man, and he's now in the Marines, and um, not sure where his faith is. What is this going to do to him that he just lost his dad? Some of my children cried. My wife went into mercy mode like she always does. <clears throat> so she's on an airplane on Tuesday to go out and visit and just be a, a source of encouragement to the wife. So it was just interesting to watch you know, all the different responses. Nothing of, of despair like we see in 88, but it, it taught me to, um, often as maybe the leader of our home, it was tempting to minimize Right to be that strong leader, and, and it's okay to cry out to the Lord to say, this is hard, and I understand it's really hard on some of my family members. I need to be there for them. So, just sharing an example. Alright, so that's kind of one, one aspect that they talked about in the video, Psalm 88. Right, That should be such an encouragement. We also want to look at James. So let's turn over to James. <clears throat> While you're going there, I want you to stop in Hebrews though. Right next door to James. Yes. Psalm eighty-eight. So it was said that Psalm eighty-eight is about Jesus, and maybe someone can comment on it. Doesn't necessarily require an answer right now, but something that doesn't quite 
having me point to Jesus is in 18, uh, at least in the nasty version, it says, you have removed lover and friend from me. And normally I wouldn't attribute Jesus to having a lover, but I can see maybe it's a Hebrewism to say all-encompassing. Maybe it's just a poor translation. Not necessarily looking for an answer, but I thought I'd point that out. Yeah, no, thank you, Ron. And I, I think you bring up a good point, and we have to be careful in the Old Testament when we start to say, this is about Jesus, right? Um, any text. Obviously, Jesus is throughout the Bible. Um, this, this progressive revelation, this plan of redemption, absolutely. But sometimes you can take that too far. I, I think, I, I'd have to go back to the video, I would say it this way. I don't think this is necessarily saying, this is Jesus. However, some of the verbiage we, we hear in here absolutely is what Jesus would have experienced on the cross, that abandonment. So we can talk more about that offline, but I, I, it's a great point, and I want to be careful to say, I don't think this is specifically saying this is all about Jesus, but Jesus absolutely felt some of this on the cross, that abandon, true abandonment from God. Okay? So thank you for bringing that up. All right, let's, let's uh, stop over in Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> And he referenced this in the video, and I just wanted to highlight it. Again, a great source of encouragement. Hebrews 2, and I'll pick it up in uh, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And here's the, the passage. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, hopefully a great source of encouragement that... Um, we, we often focus on the, what, the work on the cross, which is critical, right? The death, burial, the resurrection. But don't forget also the work of his life, where he walked in our shoes, sinless. But he understands every temptation, every suffering that you're going through. And where is he? He's sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. Let that be a source of encouragement. I often tell people, when, when you see these... These, these golden truths, these promises, if you will, underline them, highlight them. Let these be your go-to verses. You know, again, back to the theology of suffering. These are the grounding, the verses you've got to go back to to ground yourself and how you're going to react in a time of suffering. Okay, make sense? All right, over to James, just one book over. I enjoyed the context he gave because sometimes you can read James, um, and he's kind of in your face, isn't he? Um, so I want to read that context again. Again, sometimes he can come across as this kind of modern-day Proverbs, and it's just boom, 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 boom. Um, but I love the context that, that he put together there, and I want to read that again to you. Another passage that breathes with biblical realism is James 1, 1, or 1, 1 through 18. Like all biblical passages, this passage loses impact when taken out of its historical context. In fact, it can sound callous and superficial, until you understand the writer and his audience. 
James was a prominent pastor in Jerusalem. His congregation was in the midst of severe persecution that probably took place about the same time that Stephen was stoned in Acts 7 and 8. Background helps us to see James' words are caring. Pastoral advice from someone very concerned about his congregation. As a pastor, James takes what he believes about God, his wisdom, and his comfort and applies it to friends who are suffering greatly. And then he goes into uh, that passage. So let's go through that, and we'll highlight um, some of it, maybe not all of it, as we're getting near on time here. So, uh, Brian, I think you brought this up, right? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's just, that doesn't sound right. To have joy in the midst of trouble. James gently reminds them that trials are inevitable, right? We talked about in Romans 8, you must go through suffering. You must have trials. And and if you look at the word here, trial is not God sitting up there saying, all right, I'm going to throw this kind of stone and see how he reacts. I'm going to test him. It's not. It's about uh, purifying your faith. It's about confirming your faith. That's what the trials and tribulations that God brings believers, it's for our sanctification. It's for our good as Brian mentioned earlier. James knows that difficulties become more difficult when we naively assume that troubles won't come our way. Similarly, in Philippians and Peter, Paul and Peter urge us to realize that we live in a world where trials are a normal part of life. They are the rule, not the exception. We go on, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Right? That's the product of the testing of our faith. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me just read the rest of this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Again, it sounds very callous, but in the context, uh, context of pastoral care, he's trying to encourage them is, is to ask boldly. Right? Be encouraged. Ask boldly the Lord. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. This is where James brings in this contrast between... Um, States, if you will, where you can have suffering, but you can also have hardship in your time of, of success, right? This rich person, what is the temptation? They, they can become callous. They can become prideful. They can become comfortable, right? There's warnings for both sides. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Again, I go back to Romans 8 and the, the admonishment to have that eternal perspective. Right, Our sufferings don't even compare to the glory we're going to see when we reach that point. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Let me pause there for a second. How we respond to suffering is really important, right? God, God we may go through that, that time of testing and trial, but God, God does not cause us to sin. That's a response from us, a hard attitude. Comment or question? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great great question. Um, I, I, I we know that's written that's in God's inspired word, so I think absolutely not. That that is being very honest, uh, crying out. Now, what you do with that? If if you're feeling anger at God, you're feeling abandoned, you're feeling hatred. What you do next is what's really important. How you respond to that, and I think you're going to talk about some of that next week when you start to look at your heart attitude in the midst of suffering. It's a great question. So bottom line, Psalm 8, or 88 tells us we can be very open and honest with God. But now what are we doing? And what I would encourage you is go back and ground yourself in some of the promises we just talked about, right, to defeat those thoughts, to overcome those thoughts. And God is a compassionate God, right? He knows what you're feeling. And it's okay to be honest with Him, but what we do next is what's important. That's a great, great, great comment. All right, last verse um, from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right, again, a great source of encouragement. Let me get to... What amazing, comforting pastoral advice. James' words are full of grace and truth. He does not flinch at the reality of suffering, but calls us to run to God. He warns us of cynicism and sin, kind of what you were getting at, and points us to the God who loves us and has come to redeem us in the midst of our circumstances. Consider how it must have felt to, to have a fellow sufferer comfort you with these words in the midst of dire difficulty. And again, I go back to we are all counselors. Right? We are all to be spreading a, a message of hope. Um, with a couple minutes re- remaining, I thought we could cover maybe some, some applications. And the first one, it kind of gets at the comment you made, is, is our emotions. Very pe- few people wake up one morning and decide to change their theology. Change in a perf- person's belief systems are seldom that self-conscious. In ways we don't often recognize, these experiences are hermeneutical. That is, they become lenses we use to interpret life. Unfortunately, we are seldom aware that this is happening. The emotions we feel as we go through difficult experiences are not static. They morph into subtle but extremely influential conclusions about God, about ourselves, others, and life. Right? They start to shape our reaction. Yet these major changes in what we believe have not been well thought out. We have not put ourselves through a careful theological reevaluation. Again, the theology of suffering, I think, is so important. Rather, our unresolved feelings become our interpretations of life. That's the warning. That's the danger. That's why we must ground ourselves um, in the Word of God so that we can regulate those emotions and align them with Scripture. So your point is very valid, right? You can, you can be in a Psalm 88 mindset, but what you do next is so critically important. And our emotions play a big part of it. Think about your own faith. Has it really only been shaped by teaching, preaching, and personal Bible study? 
Or is there a gap between what you profess to believe and what you actually believe when the rubber hits the road? All right, so think about that. You're, you're immersed in the Word. You're going to Growing Disciples. You're listening to the pastor preach. And yet in times of suffering, how are you responding? Take evaluation of that. Again, we have a, a, compos- a compassionate God who forgives us of our sins. But when the rubber meets the road, how are you reacting? How are you responding? Okay? So, again, important to stay grounded in, in God's truth and use that as an anchor. Um, I wanted to highlight, um, how many of you, if you could raise your hand, are a part of small group? All right, good. How would you um, identify with the prayer that happens during that time? Are people being vulnerable? Do you, do you see some Psalm 88 language? Or does it become somewhat surface? I see some shaking of heads, and, and I would agree uh, in our small group, and that's not a criticism. Um, I just say that, that we have taught ourselves to, to kind of put that protection around us, right? Not to be vulnerable, and I'm not being critical, but let me just read an example here from the author. I had an epiphany one Wednesday evening in the middle of our small group meeting. People were sharing prayer requests, but it was the same old grocery list of situational self-protective prayer requests masquerading as openness and self-disclosure. I find myself thinking, why did we all feel the need to clean up our prayer requests before giving them? Why were we all so skilled at editing ourselves out of our prayer requests? Why were we so good at sharing the difficult circumstances we faced, yet so afraid of talking about our struggles in the middle of them? Did we really care about what people thought than we did about getting help? Did we really think that God would be repulsed by our sins and weakness? I wondered who we thought we were fooling. It was as if we had all agreed upon an unspoken set of rules, a conspiracy of silence. I looked around the room. These were people I thought I knew well. I did know what many of them were facing, yet I knew little of the wars going on inside of them. I brought my thoughts back to the discussion, discernment, to break the silence. I didn't think I was better than the others. I had been a willing part of the conspiracy too, but I was determined to be so no longer. That night I prayed that God would break down the walls of fear that kept us from sharing our hearts with one another and bringing to God the things that were really going on. I asked God to give us the hope, faith, and courage to put our struggles into words that would reach His ears, the ultimate source of compassion, forgiveness, wisdom and power. To my surprise, others followed with similar prayers, confessing their fears, doubts, and struggles. God began to change our group that night. I, I give that or share that hopefully as, a, again, a source of encouragement. Um, I've seen that happen in many small groups. Um, it's very familiar. And you saw how he responded here. He didn't criticize the group. It was, it was something he prayed to God. Let that maybe be your prayer for small group if that's what your experience. The people would share their struggles. And so you can be praying for them. Okay? All right, let me close in prayer.